Welcome to Peak Mind. I'm your host, Michael Trainer, and I'm here with my man, Hazard Lee. Uh, Hazard, it's an honor to have you on the show. Hey, thanks, Michael. It's great to be here. So for context, Hazard and I met at a, a dear friend, Craig Clemens' house, and I proceeded to, it's very rare that I, that my inner eight-year-old uh, comes alive, but uh, as a, as a Top Gun fan, um, you know, I think I probably inundated you with, with many, many questions, um, but as an F-16 uh, fighter pilot, uh, as well as an F-35 uh, fighter pilot, and, and, and please describe for the audience you are you there's there's pilots and then there's kind of levels uh at which you ascend in that pilot uh training can you give a little context into your experience with both aircraft and also i know i, I believe currently you're in the reserves but you're also training uh a, a multitude of different pilots in uh what is arguably the most advanced aircraft uh in the u.s uh, air force so i'd love to hear just a little bit of context from you on 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 kind of your background and, and, and where you currently stand as it relates to, to flying. Okay. Yeah. There's a lot to unpack there. So, uh, how I got started in flying, I went to an air show when I was five years old and this was back in the days when you could hop in the cockpit of a jet. So, uh, they put me in all my gear, five-year-old me looked like a bobblehead with that helmet over my shoulder. Uh, on and uh, got a chance to sit in the cockpit of an F-16 and it looked like a spaceship. This is the early 90s. I knew this is what I wanted to do. Now, there's not a lot of outlets for that as a young kid. If you want to play football or baseball, you can do that as a kid. But as a uh, you know, wannabe fighter pilot, pretty much uh, I was just stuck with memorizing facts about jets, reading about history, watching movies, of course, Top Gun. And it wasn't until I was a teenager that had a chance to fly in a, a Cessna 152. Have you flown in a Cessna 152 before? I did fly in a Cessna. Uh, how many seats are in the Cessna 152? Uh, I believe it's two, but yes. like a Cessna 172, I think has four. It's essentially I, a, a flying lawnmower with wings. I, I'll tell you just quickly, uh, I don't want to interrupt your flow, but the fact that you asked me that question, I believe I was because I was in Haiti actually after the earthquake and I was flying in the, the, the personal pilot for the president of Haiti was flying me on a, on a humanitarian mission. And for a moment, he let me take the, the joystick. So I, I wasn't taking off or landing or anything of that nature. But what I did realize uh, was, and obviously, you know, this is just my own little, but the more I tried to control the joystick, because you can really feel it if you if you even pull up or down a little bit, you know, I would go, you know, pop up and down. And I realized the more I meditated and kind of uh, released and just breathed and like wasn't trying to control it, uh, the more I the, be the better it flew. In other words, mm -hmm. I, I wasn't flying it. It was flying and I was not getting in the way, which reminded me a bit, which I'd love to get into at some point of, of your story of the of the plane crash you talk about in the book in terms of uh, overthinking. But, <clears throat> but before we get into that, please continue. Yes, I have had an experience in that aircraft. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's called a pilot induced oscillation where you're fighting the jet and you're usually losing. So you have to do less in that situation. But had a chance to fly a Cessna 152, lawnmower with wings, took off and was hooked, just loved it, how you could you know, go up, down, you could go wherever you wanted. I was living in a place called Los Alamos, New Mexico at the time. So home yep. in the Manhattan Project, purpose built to be in the middle of nowhere. So there's not a lot to do there. They wanted it in the middle of nowhere. So the Japanese and the uh, Germans couldn't attack it. But what they have is this almost James Bond airfield that's built into the side of a mountain. As soon as you take off, you're in this valley. So I knew that's what I wanted to do. We didn't really have, you know, growing up enough money for flight lessons. So I was I was working at McDonald's and was able to afford this discovery flight. But applied to the Air Force Academy. I actually got a letter back from them, which is a, always a bad sign. I didn't realize that at the time. But if you get in, you get a packet, you know, where you have to show up, what you have to do. If you don't, you get a letter. So I got a letter back from them. I was excited, brought it to my room, had a bunch of Air Force Academy posters and stickers on my desk, opened it, and it said, unfortunately, we don't have you know, room for you. Good luck uh, with your endeavors. And mm. so I was crushed, and we're peeling off that uh, Air Force Academy bumper sticker on my desk. I actually have the letter. I just hung it up on the wall uh, right in front of me. But uh, a few weeks later... I got another letter saying that I was right on the cusp of making it in. And so I went to uh, this other school called New Mexico Military Institute, kept my grades up, and then was able to get into the academy. So that's a, 
roundabout way of how I got into uh, into the Air Force. Hmm. To answer your question before that, what are, what are the different levels? So the first level is a wingman out there. And so you go through all this training. We can talk about pilot training, but it's years of training. You get out and now your number one job as a fighter pilot, you think you're hot stuff. Your number one job is to keep the snack bar stocked. You are <laughs> nothing. You're nobody. You show up to your first squadron. You're not even capable of going into combat. You're not even a wingman. You have to go through what's qual- called a mission qualification training. And then after that, you're a wingman where all you essentially do is follow your flight lead around. Uh, after a few years of doing that, then you become a flight lead where you're in charge of about four other aircraft, two to four, uh, depending on the mission. And then after a few years of that, you become an instructor pilot where you're teaching the next generation how to fly. And then when you're going to large exercises like red flag, you're leading sometimes upwards of a hundred aircraft uh, when you're flying. So that's kind of the cycle for a fighter pilot. And so I did that in F-16 and then transitioned to the F-35 and followed the same path. And and one of the things that I thought was was profound is, and you talk, you and I talked about this a little bit um, on the night we met was this the sort of the dominance of the sort of the US Air Force in the skies and how obviously many things are changing in our quickly evolving landscape but but the sort of the technological innovation as well as it occurred to me the sort of you, you know to use top gun because i think many people have that reference you know it seemed like Maverick, right, namesake, uh, was very much uh, both a thorn in the side in terms of the regulation and, and the sort of expectations that one would, one would come from in the military, but also what made him great was the embracing of, of, of free thinking, so to speak. And as I was you know, reading your book, you had talked about, one of the things you talked about was the conflict in Iraq, which I didn't realize how profound the the strategy and the execution of that mission was in eliminating you know some of the air defense forces and i didn't also didn't remember how significant the force was in iraq and how if they had taken over uh say for example saudi after kuwait how significant that would have been in terms of the geopolitical balance but one of the things i read after kind of going deep in your book was actually part of the the thing the problem was that saddam kind of didn't put his best fighters in his best aircraft he he had a more kind of regimented uh, orientation and so i'd love to hear a little bit about um what makes a great fighter pilot right like obviously you're trusted with with many of the most advanced kind of capabilities in in the form of of modern fighting and aircraft but but also one of the things that differentiates you as well as as you train other uh combat pilots is the level of decision making which is which is the topic of of your newest book the art of clear thinking and and that was something that really struck me so could you give a little bit of context into um how you train or or the or the the sort of the thought matrix as you consider training up uh, an incredible pilot into an elite fighter pilot? Yeah. So I'll first start with why. So when we, we have the burden as the United States of going and projecting power to the other side of the world, it'd be a lot different if we were defending a piece of sky right here, but it's mm. very challenging for us to go to another country, go to work and to be able to project that power thousands of miles away. We're, fundamentally at a disadvantage. One of the most important mission sets out there, going back to the the latest Top Gun, is the suppression of enemy air defense mission. So if you imagine those those missile sites lining the canyon walls, Mm -hmm. typically there's not a convenient canyon that you can fly through to avoid them. You need to take those out individually, disrupt or destroy them. And so that's been what I've been focused on the majority of my career. I'm Wild Weasel pilot, F-16 Block 50s, that's our bread and butter in the F-35 to be able to take those things out. And so the enemy's not stupid. They are planning for us to be able to show up on their doorstep and take these out. So they have, first of all, their surface air missile sites. They are the best way to describe them are monsters. These things don't have to adhere to a lot of the restrictions that we have as fighter pilots. They don't have to fly a thousand miles an hour. They don't have to pull nine G's. They can be pre-positioned there right now, whereas we have to project that power across the world. And so their radars are far bigger than ours. Their missiles 
can carry a lot more fuel, a lot bigger ordnance as well. They can fly at near hypersonic speeds. That's Mach 5. So it's very difficult to be able to take these things out individually. And the enemy, they're very clever. They're sitting around thinking all day, how do we defend ourselves from the U.S. showing up and taking these SAM sites out? And so what they do is they overlap them. So you're not just taking on one of these things. If you look at, you can look on Google at an unclassed version of North Korea, and you see just circles everywhere. So you're never going to be in just one SAM ring where they can reach out and shoot you. You're going to be in two, three, four. And the enemy, what they're doing is creating a, what's called an IADS, Integrated Air Defense System. Everything is integrated. They're passing information along. Same thing what we do. So that data link ability is very challenging. And so it's our job to go in there and be able to slowly dismantle it. So that's what you read about in that story about going and taking on the Kari system. So it was that computerized system to defend Iraq during the early 90s. And so our job as uh, seed fighter pods is to how do you dismantle that? And that takes a lot of creativity. So you have to, as a fighter pod, to be a good one, you have to be able to listen to direction. You have to be able to be calm under pressure. But you also, as you start getting more senior, have to be able to find creative solutions to be able to dismantle these systems. And a lot of times it's it's very counterintuitive. Hmm. So we're flying in the F-35. We carry only two GBU-31s, 2,000-pound bombs. Like I said before, we might be refueling, flying to the other side of the world, two bombs. And so you have to make sure each one of those counts. So if you can take out, for instance, a fiber optic node disabling their uh, data link systems, well, you might be able to drop a bomb on it, but maybe you can use some non-traditional means. Maybe you can do use a cyber attack. Maybe you can have troops on the ground do it. Maybe you can use a ship out at sea. So we're spending a lot of time planning these missions, sometimes days, months, or years into the future. So it takes a lot of creativity and problem-solving, decision-making to be able to make that happen. Wow. And there, it seems like there's a tension, but but it's kind of a dynamic tension, right? In in evolution, and I've I've heard there's actually this it's random, but mathematical cosmologist by the name of Brian Swim, and he talks about actually evolution biologically, like the the hawk and the rabbit have each evolved in their own dynamic to be more elite because of the other, because of that sort of predator prey relationship, right? The the rabbit has evolved greater dexterity, keener eyesight, etc. The you know the hawk greater cunning, you know greater greater capabilities. It seems like there's a there's that tension between being um, obviously in the military, you need to follow orders, uh, you need to be, uh, you know, operating within a system that is coordinating a multitude of moving parts in, you know, in dynamic kind of environments that are always changing. And so it seems, though, that what makes someone truly excellent is that creative thinking, is that decision making, is that ability to sort of think outside the box, which which I would I would argue seems to be one of the character traits of, for example, uh, you know, the American orientation as it relates to creativity, right? Like I, I think there there is, you know, you could argue that different cultures have different, you know, um, areas in which they excel, uh, and and all of those have kind of counterpoints. But it seems like creativity is something that is encouraged, and it, as, especially as you map these sort of problems, uh, like you mentioned with the Kari, the Kari missile system with with the Iraqis. As you as you are now an instructor, how do you how does that how do you think about cultivating that kind of both following uh, the orders? for lack of a better term, but also encouraging a level of creative thinking. Because you talk about, for example, in the book, you know, this, and I'd love for you to sort of share the story for those listening, um, but this, this, this sort of plane crash. And, and what's beautiful is you, you talk about prior to the crash, all of the default poor decisions that were made um, that sort of led to that, uh, that, that results. And obviously, as you're flying, uh, you know, uh, uh, hundreds of millions of dollar aircraft and one decision can not only mean the end for you but could have disastrous consequences for many others your decisions are extraordinarily uh, poignant and yet you have to i think maintain a level of relaxation while you're making those decisions because as you talked about in the in the plane crash example part of the problem was they weren't thinking clearly because they were in that level of of excitement anxiety whatever what have you but for those listening how how do you how do you think about that tension between, for lack of a better term, structured, regimented thinking and creativity, 
and how when one finds themselves in a place of, for lack of a better term, anxiety, can can you can you reenter a place of, for lack of a better term, calm calmness, lack of reactivity, such that you can make those uh, clear decisions? So we have a saying that as soon as you put on your helmet, you lose twenty IQ points, and so that means <laughs> what looks easy on the ground gets far more challenging when you're walking out to your jet. It's hot out there, so if you're in the Middle East or you're in the desert or Phoenix, even mm-hmm. you're looking at 120 degree temperatures. We're wearing a G suit, which are look like snow pants on. You have on a jacket, you have on a black helmet. It's it's hot. When you pop the canopy, it's probably about 140 degrees. So when we fly and dogfight, you're looking at losing five to 10 pounds even during a sortie. So you're losing a lot of weight. You're pulling a lot of G's. So we are pulling, we're at one G right now, one time the force of gravity. If you've ever been in a roller coaster that does a loop and pushes your head down, that's that's about three G's. If you a Formula One car breaks about five, we're pulling almost double that, nine G's, nine times the force of gravity. It's this crushing force just vertically on your spine. You're just pinned to your seat. Each arm weighs 250 pounds. And the real threat is blood is being pulled out of your brain. So it looks like the whole world is just shrinking down to the point where you're looking like you're looking through a, a toilet paper roll. Mm-hmm. And so the threat is if you lose enough blood, you'll pass out. And at the speeds we're flying, you're probably going to impact the ground before you wake up. And unfortunately, over the years, we've lost about one pilot a year to what's called a G-induced loss of consciousness, where they pass out, they impact the ground. Now we have some software that can help us try to write the uh, aircraft at the last minute. And it's saved about 10 people so far. But you know, it's very challenging to be able to make decisions in that environment. And if you boil a fighter pilot's job down, it's to make decisions, often with limited amount of information, limited amount of time and lives on the line. So that's what we really focus on and try to train the students and try to select out of the students. And you're right. It's important that they're able to be flexible with their thinking. We sometimes get students that like to script everything. They like to, they're going to turn right here. They're going to turn left here. They're going to climb here and they can get through pilot training relatively well by doing that. And so sometimes we have students that show up here, but the complexity of what we're doing, especially once you get to about the middle of our course, it's far too complex to make that happen. And so what we find is the wheels fall off with those students. They'll be doing really well. They're very studious, but they have not worked that muscle of flexible thinking. They've tried to script everything out. It gets to the point where the missions are too complex and then they can no longer keep up. So what I really try to hammer into the new students is to not take that approach. Be prepared for all the situations that come up, but don't be scripting it ahead of time. That's called negative transfer. When you're expecting something to happen and something else uh, happens instead, then then you're going to be less prepared. So Uh, One of the things that we focus on is being able to stay in that present moment. If you make a mistake, especially as new students, sometimes they're not used to failing. And so they will start dwelling on the mistake that they made. But if you think about it, if you made a mistake, now you're in a worse position. You need 100% of your cognitive bandwidth to be able to get out of that problem. And if you're thinking about how you screwed up, how you're going to fail out of the course, then you're not going to be in the best state of mind. And at speeds we're flying, it only takes a couple bad mistakes to get into a really bad situation. So as an instructor, that's one of my jobs is teaching them how to calm themselves down, especially when we go to the tanker. So we have these essentially these big flying gas stations. They're like a airliner filled with fuel. And it's a fully manual maneuver. So you pull it behind it. You have a refueling receptacle, a hole in your jet about 10 feet behind your head. And you pull up to this boom that's sticking out of the tanker. And you've been taught your entire career never to touch another aircraft, never get hit by another aircraft. And now you're intentionally doing it at about 350 miles an hour. And so new students are understandably nervous when this happens. And their heart rates, we put heart rate monitors on them. It's about 170 beats a minute. And they're just sitting in a seat, not even maneuvering. And at that at that heart rate, you don't have the fine motor skills that you need to be able to maneuver in relation to another aircraft. And so try to teach them box breathing, five seconds in, hold five seconds, five seconds out, wiggling their fingers, wiggling their toes, really trying to activate their parasympathetic nervous system to calm themselves down 
because we've also found that this is important for their brains as well. So the Air Force has been doing a lot of studies all the way back to World War II when they found that good pilots were making stupid mistakes in combat and getting themselves killed. And they found that really as your heart rate goes up, as you get more stressed out, there's this optimal band too too low and you're getting complacent, you're making mistakes because you're bored too high and you start losing your ability. The number one thing is spatial understanding of where everything is around you. It also applies to creativity, being able to pull from different concepts to be able to combine into a new solution. So it's important from a fine motor skill uh, aspect as well as a cognitive aspect to be able to calm themselves down. Yeah, I, I thought that was really actually noteworthy. You, you talk about box breathing. I've heard about that practice as well in the SEALs in, in terms of breath work uh, as, a, as, a, as a tool to sort of get into that parasympathetic state. You also mentioned uh, that before you actually fly on a mission, you're, you're actually in a forced state of not making taxing decisions. I thought that was really interesting. Like before you go on a big mission, you're, you're, you're kind of setting your brain up to make complex decisions, it seems, by kind of being in a restful state because you could be in a prolonged uh, period of that like activated state for, for a long time. Are there any insights that you can share as it relates to entering into that parasympathetic parasympathetic state or or setting people up so that they can be in a place of good decision making as they enter into their own stressful environments, whether that be in the boardroom or or in another context that you've learned, obviously, from being in the most acute full, you know, multiple G's, many hours, enemy, you know, enemy territory. You know, what what, what kind of insights could you impart um, on when you get into that place of anxiety, you know, the tools that you utilize to step back into that place from which clear decisions can be made? I think the biggest thing is understanding that your focus and attention is a resource, just like anything else out there. And so mm -hmm. decision f fatigue is very real. So before something important, you don't want to be making a lot of important decisions or even other, you want to make as few decisions as possible before, for instance, you're launching on a night mission. So it can be pretty challenging. We fly at all different types of hours. When I was in Afghanistan, I was on you know, the graveyard shift, as we called it for the majority of the time where I would go out flying at maybe 11 at night and I would fly for sometimes six, seven hours and get back, you know, when pretty much when the sun was about to uh, come up. So it can be challenging that whole day beforehand to, to not be focused on other things. So just realize that your attention is a limited resource Sleep is extremely important. So that's something that the Air Force has done a lot of studies on. Eight hours is about what everybody needs. They To test it, they've had uh, fighter pilots and pilots be in simulators. Then they'll cut the sleep by about an hour. What they find is the next day, people understandably feel tired. They make mistakes. But if you keep that sleep at, say, seven hours, the next week, they will acclimate to it. They will say that they no longer feel tired but they will still be making the same mistakes that they made before. And wow. they'll cut it down to six hours. Same thing will happen. So we legally have to have 12 hours of uninterrupted rest with a period of eight hours of sleep before we fly. You know, And that's a huge, huge burden for us to be able to schedule around. But it's so important when you're flying these machines because they're amplifying everything we're doing. Your closure rates are about a mile every three seconds. So you have to be in the zone to be able to fly them. And so sleep, critical aspect. That's profound. Um, talk to me a little bit about fast forwarding, uh, or for, excuse me, not fast forwarding, fast forecasting, because I, th I thought this concept was really, really potent. And it's something that, that everyone can use in their own life as it relates to decision-making. Yeah, fast forecasting is understanding, understanding the expected value of the decision you're making. So kind of the process that I go through in the book is being able to assess the problem in front of you. If you're not able to accurately assess a problem, you're never going to consistently make good decisions. And so I talk about different ways to be able to assess the problem you're looking at. Next is being able to develop courses of action. So we, we talked about how important creativity is to be able to develop potential decisions that you can go down. Once you have those, now you have to choose the best one. And that comes down to the expected value. So it's actually a simple equation. It's difficult sometimes to do. It takes a career of experience to really be able to do it quickly. It is what is the good that's going to happen out of this 
potential course of action. What is the probability of that happening? Minus the risk. What is the bad times the chance of that happening? So that's all you're trying to do. But if you can structure it that way, then you're looking at the problem in the correct way. So a lot of times people like to haphazardly make decisions out there, or even worse, they like to either not make decisions themselves or not make a decision in general. So uh, we have a saying that no decision is a decision, and it's usually the worst one to make. So make a decision, be decisive about it, and move on. And the framework to look at that is through fast forecasting the expected value. So it can be challenging to plug in those numbers. I would say, especially if you have a few years experience in whatever whatever field you're looking at, you can use your experience to estimate what it should be generally. Sometimes people get caught up in really outsourcing their decision-making to committees or computer models. And we have a lot of advanced computer models that we use, but you have to be able to internally make that expected value call to be able to compare it to whatever the computer comes out with. And I've seen a lot of times where it's some 19-year-old tech that's running the computer model. They fat finger the data entry and then garbage in, garbage out. And it's only because somebody was able to come up with what is the expected value on their own and saw that it wasn't right that they were able to update it. Because really, if you're coming up with the expected value, and we like to say everybody's a decision maker, everybody needs to come up with a decision on their own. You don't necessarily need to execute it. Now start comparing it to what other people came up with, and you'll find one of three things happen. Either it's the same that somebody else came up with, good. That means that two people came up with the same solution from different angles. Two, you find out that you were wrong, wrong, in which case that's great. It gives you an up, uh, opportunity to update your mental model, model, the packaging of different variables of how you think so that the next time you can make a better decision or you can be the hero for the day. You find the error and you save the day. So uh, always come up with your own decision first. It's, uh, you know, it's called critical thinking. And then after that, you can compare it to what other people came up with and it holds people accountable. Yeah, I like in the book you talk about, as you mentioned earlier, this kind of refueling decision where where you, you you literally were in a life or death circumstance and had to make a couple of different calculations, not only with your own life on the line, but uh, but with other pilots lives on the line and the decision of whether or not to with unknown variables, which I thought was really interesting, right? Like mortar attack had happened on a, on a, on a runway. You actually don't know if you can land there. Don't know if you can make it back to air, air the, you know, the air base. Uh, do you eject over enemy territory? And then the plane, the refueling plane, you know, is, is a bit far away. You know, if you go that way, you're actually moving away from the base. And I thought it was really powerful to think about, okay, you you were actually doing the math, like not just like, Mm, okay, which way? Which way does my my gut lead? You're actually doing kind of a risk reward variable, like mathematical calculation of what is my best decision uh, as best you could with the variables that you had, and it was it was really poignant for me. Uh, clearly, I've never been in that type of a circumstance. But in thinking through whether it be you know investing in financial decisions or whether it be you know thinking about, I think a lot of people get hung up, and as you said. I, there's definitely been periods in my life where I haven't made a decision because it's so big and so consequential and I don't really want to contend with the consequence and therefore I delay. And, and oftentimes that's a decision in and of itself and, and not, and not a good one. Um, and so when you're thinking about this kind of decision uh, matrix, you also talk a little bit about this, this notion, which I'd love for you to elaborate on of exponential thinking and, and how oftentimes the human brain doesn't necessarily calculate, um, in, in the context of exponential thinking, we, we think more oftentimes in, in linear ways. Can you talk a little bit about exponential thinking and, and how that, uh, how that plays into the decision matrix? Yeah, that's, that's a good point. So as humans, we've really evolved to think linearly. You walk 30 steps, you're now 30 steps away. But technology is really amplifying everything that's going on around us. So the phone you have in your pocket can do the job of dozens of people from just a few years ago. A modern combine harvester can do the job of hundreds of people. The fighters that we fly, we can fly 100 times faster than we can run. We can carry 100 times more. We can see out to the horizon. So you're thousands of times more capable in the jet. So when you're amplifying all your decisions by a thousand, you really can see when something is linear versus 
you know, there are three main power laws that you want to look at exponential growth. So I think we're all familiar with that from compound interest. One example in flying though, is uh, the force of the air resistance on us. So if we eject going, you know, 70 miles an hour, we all stuck our hand going out the, you know, the car window going down the highway, you know, it's not too bad. If you eject at, for instance, Mach 1.6, about a thousand miles an hour, it's not 10 or 15 times greater. It's over a hundred times greater or 300 times the force on your body, actually 300 times the force will rip your body apart. And so that's because the, the force on your body doesn't adhere linearly. It's exponentially it's square of your speed. And so there's a lot of things out there that adhere to, you know, that's one power law. Another is the law of diminishing return. And so I think most of us are familiar with that at the gym. You go to the gym for a couple of months, you're making a lot of gains. If you're doing the same workout, it's going to eventually taper off. Same reason why sports cars cost, you know, supercars cost $300,000 and they're maybe only 25% better than a Corvette. That's one third of the price. And then the last is long tail power laws. So that's uh, relevant, for instance, on Netflix. So the, the top shows, everybody watches. And there's a quick drop off where, you know, the top three or four shows probably gets more views than everything else combined. So being able to identify those power laws is key for being able to understand and assess the problem that you're looking at. One of the best tools for doing it is to just be able to graph the data. It's a tool from thousands of years ago. If you just graph the data you're looking at, often it j jumps to you, whether it's exponential or linear or a long tail power law. Wow. I love that. As as someone who is listening, maybe making or or considering some some rather large decisions in their own life, and and are are procrastinating on on those decisions, um, which can have exponential consequence. So, for example, I like how you use the example of the supercar. Um, in day to day life, that might be like, what city do I live? Do I move? Do I move or stay? For example, where I'm at. Um, and, and there's obviously a myriad of other decisions that, that proceed from that, right? Like where is it optimal for me professionally to be located? Where is my friendship group? Uh, you know, whatever the inputs are that, that make life worth living. Um, you know, Tim Ferriss talks about actually, if you're young and you're looking to grow where, where you put yourself when you don't have a tremendous amount of resources to invest, is a very profound and significant decision because who you surround yourself with, the density of people in your network and, and how you can sort of add value to them so it's such that you can build meaningful relationships can have profound consequence. Um, what are the ways in which, for those listening, you can impart um, any, any anecdotes or helpful insights around how you think about making a big decision in life? Like if you're making, obviously you're making very big consequential decisions all the time across a multitude of, of very consequential situations. But for those, for those who are living, for lack of a better term, uh, less acutely dangerous lives, but, 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 but the danger I think in that is that they are, they they are living in mediocrity. In other words, they are not feeling they are not feeling the acute consequence of that decision, and therefore letting years of their life slide by without making those big decisions. What kind of thoughts or insights might you impart on them as it relates to uh, the potency of, of of not only making you know good decisions, but perhaps making more you know quick decisions? And then you know, do you correct if it if it's off course? Like, how do you, how do you think about that from the the point of view of of an everyday listener? Yeah, so I think the number one thing is to have a framework for making a decision because I didn't learn the framework until I joined the Air Force. We go through however much long, however long the schooling that you go through. And my first class on decision-making wasn't until I was in pilot training. So having some sort of framework for me, that's being able to assess the problem in front of you, choose the correct course of action, and then being able to execute. Being able to assess the problem we talked to a little bit, but you only want to be able to assess the problem enough so that you have the resolution to be able to make the decision. So a lot of times people have analysis by paralysis, but your ability to be able to assess the problem in front of you follows a power law like we were talking about. It's not a linear path of understanding. You're going to understand a lot about a problem early on, and then it's going to start to taper off your understanding. So whether you spend a day analyzing what you're going to do versus six months, I bet you in that day, you're going to get 
80% of the way there. So just realize that if you're continuing to focus on a decision, sometimes it might be worth it. Maybe the decisions are, are so close that you, you really have to get this right. But for most things, you can make a decision and move on. Once you have that resolution to be able to come up with the different courses of action and you select the right one, then move on. Conversely, though, sometimes there are two decisions that are so close that the uncertainty is too great. And you know that no matter how much you look at this decision, that you're never going to be able to resolve which one's better. That's also a good problem to have. That means you have two viable decisions. So don't spend forever trying to figure out which is the best when you know the uncertainty is too great. Just pick one. It can be flipping a coin you know, whatever. As humans, we hate uncertainty, but that's something you really have to learn to embrace because outside of coin flips and dice rolls, everything's going to have a large amount of uncertainty with what you're doing. So you have to, you have to learn to just embrace it. And I think a lot of people, a lot of people, unfortunately don't. And so that's one of the things I really enjoy about flying. And I think flying is probably the single best thing you can do to improve your decision-making because as soon as you take off, it's on you, especially if you're soloed to land that thing. There's nobody else that's going to land it. I remember my first solo back in 2005 and thinking there's there's no no instructor in the seat next to me. It's all on me to be able to make that decision. And so when you ha are forced to do it, I think everybody can be a good decision maker. Everybody should be decisive at making decisions. I know having been an instructor for many years that you can teach anybody to become a good decision maker. They just have to constantly put themselves in that position under that stress to be able to make it. Yeah, it's uh, it's really really potent. I think also putting yourself in a, in circumstances where you you are forced to enter, for lack of a better term, into that flow state. Uh, I was just watching a, a video earlier today of a sixty year old who is a legendary uh, free solo climber. You know, so he's climbing, you know, like Alex Honnold, you know, uh, at, in El Capitan, like he's climbing in thousand, multi thousand foot pitches with with no no ropes, no restraints. He's actually barefoot. So he said, "There's three options: you either go up, uh, you go down, or you're falling." You know, like there's no, there's no, there's no like, okay, let me pause. You know, it's it's literally uh, a life or death. But then, uh, what opens up in that context, I think, is a whole new field of possibility, and while this isn't, uh, you know, to say everyone should go into life or death, death circumstances to make good decisions, I do think what I learned from you and, and really loved about the book is that, that, that notion of, for lack of a better term, up-leveling the expectations that one can put on themselves and really stepping into a place of leadership, right? Other, it's not just you who's responsible, but it's also you're responsible for you know, the lives of others in a, in a, in a profound way such that, that I think we elevate into, you know, a side of ourself that, that we may not always be accessing, you know, David Goggins, uh, who's obviously, uh, become pretty well known talks about the governor, you know, you, you mentioned cars earlier, a lot of cars actually could go faster, but there's an artificial constraint that the automakers, automakers put on them so that they, they're, they're limiting their, their potential. And many of us, I think, live in our own governors, right? We're, we're limiting our own capacity because of our fear of making decisions. And I do think that we are living in, you know, you talk about ex exponential decision making. I do think we are living in an exponential age in terms of inputs, right? So, uh, you know, there's a, a famous quote by Terrence McKenna where he said, the world has changed more since 1992 than it did in the previous thousand years. Now, whether that's actually true one could argue but i do think obviously since the you know the the coming out of the internet and now we're seeing ai and a variety of different exponential technologies there's no question that humans biologically have existed in in a relatively slow slower rate of evolution and in the last you know 20 30 years things are moving a lot faster and one of the questions i'd love your insights around because i think your your world that that exponential aspect it makes is is basically life or death, right? You you, flow, you fly the F sixteen, you fly the F thirty five. I'd actually love to geek out a little bit on the F thirty five and hear a little bit more about that aircraft. But part of that is also like, how do you maintain that technological advantage in an exponential age, right? Where wherein there are so many others who are also seeking to outdo you. You're dealing with 
you know, perhaps secret systems that no one else knows about. And so every, every time you're going up, you're, 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 you're preparing for uncertainty and you have a multitude of inputs, right? Uh, now everyone, whether they're an Air Force pilot or not, has more access to information in their, in their, in, in their hand than presidents did not two generations ago. So I, I'd love to hear your insights as it relates particularly to this you know, period of time where, where we're getting besieged with so much information. How does one sort through that information and decide on what to focus on? And, and how do you think about um, that as it relates to decision making? Because I think what you said earlier about decision fatigue, you know, can really come into play there as well, because people don't know necessarily, they're focusing, for lack of a better term, on the wrong things. Absolutely. I don't think there's been a time in history where making the right decisions is more important than now. And that's because technology is evolving rapidly. One of the examples I, I talk about in the book is as humans, we burn about 90 watts of electricity, about a, a single incandescent light bulb. And yet the average US citizen burns about 15,000 watts of electricity. That electricity is powering our technology, which is leveraging our decisions. Now, flying fighters, we've had a front row seat to this for the last 50 years. And that's why we focus so much on decision-making and air combat really evolves because it's so focused on technology. If you think a soldier pulling a trigger, shooting a bullet, they're making the same decision that we are, but we're, you know, in the stealth fighter, we're dropping a 2000 pound bomb and there's a lot more at stake. And that's due simply to not the human, to the technology that we're flying in. It's a suit of technology that we're flying into combat. And so we've been really focused on decision-making. Air combat's evolved over the years. In the 1950s, it was all about flying high and fast. Then John Boyd came along, uh, his great book uh, on him behind my shoulder, but he said it's more about the dogfight, turning tightly and sustaining that turn. In the early 2000s, it evolved again. It became about networking all the jets together, almost like your phone, being able to maintain situational awareness of the battlefield. And that's really where the F-35 thrives. So if you want to geek out about the F-35 a little bit. The, I do, yes. T talk to us it. a little bit so, about that because, and and I love, because that was going to be my next question is the evolution of dogfighting, right? Like many of us had this notion of sort of Top Gun uh, in terms of this sort of weaving in and out hex hexagonal kind of motion. And when I was talking to you the other night, uh, at least the sense I had was actually now you're you're so conscious not of air, only of air to air but like surface to air sea to air and also you have such advanced technological systems like how do you think about dogfighting with an F35 yeah so if you're in a dogfight you've probably done something wrong um, okay so number one thing about the F35 is it's stealth so stealth mm -hmm. is the ticket to the ball game these days if you are not stealth you will be shot down we're seeing that play out in Ukraine right now. There are a lot of those advanced surface-to-air missiles on both sides. None of the aircraft flying are stealth. And so that's driving all of them to fly really low so that those SAM sites can't shoot them. And then they're getting shot down by what are called man pads, essentially Stinger missiles and AAA, so gunfire. you got to be stealth. And that's why I switched to the F-35. I was doing a lot of advanced exercises in the F-16. And we were the wild weasels. Our motto was first in, last out. That's what we did. But these these SAM threats, we talked to why they're so advanced, they were getting so advanced that we weren't doing that anymore. We were staying really far away, lobbing these what are called harm missiles, high-speed anti-radiation missiles. They go after signals from really far away, never going inside the MES, the missile engagement zone. And it was the F-35 that was doing you know, all the fun stuff. And so I saw the writing on the wall, and so I decided to switch to the F-35. The F-35, people have probably heard a lot of negative press about it. It's because it was a new way of thinking. So any new technology follows what's called the technological S-curve, where initially it's going to have a lot of issues and bugs. At some point, it's going to hit an inflection point where the engineers and the pilots all get it together, not just aircraft. Think about, I mean, music. You had the Walkman that worked, then you had the CD player. Mm -hmm. I remember riding on the bus to school with zero second anti-skip protection and trying to just hold that thing perfectly, and it sucked. So, you know, the engineers were eventually able to work that out. Then you had the, the iPod come from that. Then you had streaming music. So same thing with fighter aircraft. It all goes back to technology. And so 
the F35's inflection point was 2018. And so it's all software. We got a new software load overnight. Everything got better and unlocked the gun. It was almost like a, a video game. So the F35, it's stealthy. Next is it has amazing sensors. It can see you know, out to the horizon, 360 degree view. And it's very challenging as an engineering team to be able to make that happen because to make something aerodynamic, you're looking at an aircraft like the F-104, little tiny, short, stubby wings. It could go fast. It couldn't turn to save its life. Now think you also have to make it stealthy. You might recall the F-117, the angular uh, stealth yeah. fighter or a B-2. That's optimized purely for stealth. But now this aircraft has to have great sensors, very challenging to do. Typically, you want a sensor to be facing where you're looking at, or even worse, to be a dish looking in that direction, which is not great for stealth or aerodynamics. So the engineers have done a great job of embedding it into the skin of the aircraft. Very challenging to do when you want something to be stealthy. Next is there's so much information coming at the pilot. The F-16, we had this problem because the best way to describe it is it's a rat's nest of technology. 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s techs all stuffed into the jet. It doesn't talk to each other. Each one has a different screen, often giving conflicting information. And so we had a very high, what's called CFIT, controlled flight into terrain, where a pilot is flying low, they misprioritize, they're looking at their radar and they run into a mountain and kill themselves. And so the F-35, what it does is it uses AI to be able to fuse all that information down to a red dot if it's a bad guy, green dot if it's a good guy. So it makes it a lot easier for the pilot to be able to understand what's going on. We also have a uh, a helmet. It's about $400,000 a piece. So you don't want to drop that going out to the jet, <laughs> but yeah, they're going to garnish your wages for the next 10 years. But this helmet, it's true augmented reality. So when I'm looking out, I see symbols over all the good guys, everything I need to know to interact and work together as a team with them. Symbols over all the adversaries, everything I need to know to be able to engage them. And we have multiple cameras around the jet that can see in pitch black. And so at night, I can turn the system on and it pumps it into my helmet. And so you can see through your body and through the jet. So pretty crazy experience the first couple of times you fly it. But the jet does all this for you, making information very intuitive to you so that you can have situational awareness of what's going on in the battlefield. Next is, you know, it'd be great if all the fighters were... F-35, F-22, these latest fighters, but 80% of the Air Force are legacy fighters, F-16, F-15, A-10, designed in the 70s. And so those are going to be around till the late 2040s. So what we have to do is work together as a team. So the F-35 is great at passing that situational awareness off to these other fighters. And so when we're flying, it's a really bad threat. We'll go in and kill it. If not, we want to use their missiles their fuel, because it's just as good as ours to be able to engage them. So we can stay on station, maintain that situational awareness and go after the uh, the bad threats. We also have amazing uh, flight control systems. So the F-16 was very difficult to be able to, for instance, land. It was the first fly-by-wire jet, very advanced for its time, but the flight compu- control computer is nothing close to a modern day, uh, for instance, the F-35. And so uh, if you're trying to land you get into you know one of those little pilot induced oscillations, so it's it's not terrible to land, but it's very tricky to really grease on the the runway. F thirty five, very robust flight computer. It's running a real time model of what's going on as a pilot. You're moving the stick, and it's figuring out what to do with the flight controls to make that happen. And it will often do a lot of counterintuitive things. We can, it's so robust that we can do what's called a pedal turn. You can go on on YouTube and go, uh, search it. But it's where, if you've seen the first Top Gun, that flat spin out to sea, we're intentionally doing that. And it's it's easy. It's it's so simple and easy that we'll do it while we're dogfighting. And you can gun somebody while you're doing it. You're actually using rudder to pull lead on them. And it's nothing. It's because the flight control computer is so advanced that it can handle it. The back stabs are going in opposite directions. And it's something, this high, what's called angle of attack, where you're skidding through the sky, things from a modeling perspective, get very complex, really squirrely. They couldn't figure that out in the 70s with their computing power, but you can you can do it now. And so all that relates back to technology. So that's a long-winded way of saying that whoever has the best technology is going to win. Also, though, one thing to really note that a lot of people get wrong, they'll see, 
something out of Russia. Russia's great, really good at marketing their you know, one-off test experiments, but those are just science experiments. If a country has one, two, three, 10, 20, 100 of something, it really doesn't mean a lot. The thousandth F-35 is currently going down the factory floor right now in Fort Worth, which the factory is incredible. It's a mile long. A lot of it is automated. They're making 200 F-35s at once there. But the thousandth one is currently going down the line. So not only is it the technology of the aircraft, it's also the technology of the factory building it. But it all comes back to technology and training. Yeah, I have a lot of questions to ask about that, um, especially as it relates to technology, advent of AI, machine learning. It seems like what strikes me is that you're using the F F thirty five in a way almost like as a command post. Also for the for the older aircraft, um, you're sort of using the brains, for lack of a better term, of this of this kind of elite technology to help coordinate others. And it feels like as you think about swarm and other kinds of technologies that will become, uh, I think it seems like, for lack of a better term, more and more relevant, having that 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 fast decision making and also technological advantage will become uh, more and more uh, poignant. I, I did want to ask, though, because I know our time is is getting is getting towards its end for this conversation. You and I spoke briefly uh, at the beginning of before we started recording about UFOs and uh, I am not a huge, um, you know, I don't think a lot about it one way or the other, to be totally honest. Uh, but I did find it fascinating that you as a pilot have probably, especially with this advanced technology, likely had greater context for, you know, potential inquiry around that than most. So if you have any insights around an unidentified flying objects, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah. So as I was saying, I have seen UFOs, but it's going to disappoint you. So unidentified flying object, what, let's break that down. That's something that you haven't identified. doesn't necessarily mean it's an alien spaceship. And the best way to describe that is when you're going cross country, if, you're, if you've been in a, in a plane going cross country or even a car going cross country, you sometimes see glints of light out in the distance. You see random buildings that look weird but you're not going to go off your path to go and, and search and find that thing. The same thing happens when we're flying. I see unidentified things all the time, but you're really busy as a fighter pilot. You're focused on what you're doing. And so sure I could peel off and go investigate it, but most of the time it's, it's, it's nothing. And so it's, have I seen UFOs? Yes. Have they been alien spaceships? You know, not yet. So yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's my take on, on UFOs. You see random things all the time, just like you do when you're driving cross country, you're usually busy, you have something to do. And, uh, if you do investigate it, it really turns out to be nothing. What, what about, and this is just a personal inquiry because in my ex one exposure to what I, I, I was like, okay, wow. And I was with a, a group of people. I was actually in Mexico and I saw a craft. It looked like a star, to be frank, but it was, it was, you could tell it was lower hanging. Sometimes you could tell something's an airplane. It's either beeping or it's making a slow move. Uh, but this was like perfectly still. It shot like extraordinarily fast across the sky and then cut hard right, like a 90 degree angle instantaneously, then up and then hard right. Like, and I know with like, for example, F 35, like there's new like hovering technologies and there's things you can do which seem, seemingly would have been previously impossible where an aircraft can almost go like, I don't know what you describe it, full vertical and then and do maneuvers you've never seen before. But I've never, nor could I explain with my current concept of physics, seen an, an aircraft moving at full speed that then could that go from from a straight point to a hard right without any Without any, you know, without any soft, are there any aircraft that you're aware of that can make those kind of maneuvers? In other words, like an absolute 90 degree stop and then, you know, jagged angle move. So man fighters are really limited to nine, nine and a half Gs. That's really all humans can take. But we do fly with autonomous things all the time. They're called missiles. Mm. And so those <laughs> missiles can pull far more Gs than you can. So yeah, they can... You know, all this stuff is on YouTube. So go search AIM-9X uh, shot. You'll see missile come off the rail, do a full 90 degrees. Was that what you saw? Highly doubt it because those are tiny missiles. I would say 
you know, maybe you saw a UFO. I don't want to be the person to rain on your parade, but you know, most of the time when I've really dug into something, when you're flying, there's a lot of weird line of sight issues that happen with multiple aircraft moving at different directions really fast. Uh, usually windows, uh, on aircraft, if you're not in the front cockpit, have a weird, uh, distortion to them. So usually there's some sort of weird aspect on that end, as opposed to that you're seeing something that on the other end, that's doing something incredible. But like I said, you know, I'm not going to rain on your parade. Maybe you, maybe you did see something. Well, it's, 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 it's a, uh, it's a point of inquiry. I, I don't have a definitive right. worldview one way or the other. I'm always fascinated by things that open up your sense of possibility and wonder. Um, I want to move us towards a close. I did want to get your perspective on one thing. We talked, I think, a little bit about it in our private conversation, but I just finished, in addition to your book, which I highly recommend uh, people uh, checking out, uh, The Art of Clear Thinking, um, I recently read another book that I loved, uh, which was basically The Changing World Order uh, by Ray Dalio. And he posits I'm making a vast summary here, but that history has repeated itself time and again, and that ultimately, at some point, there's sort of a changing of the guard in terms of the, the dominant world power. Now, uh, one could argue at present, um, although I think there's a lot more, you know, combining of, of various, you know, countries, you know, NATO and otherwise, but 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 things are definitely moving exponentially. Um what are your views in terms of, you know, you, you'd mentioned technology. I know F-35 at present, it seems to be, you know, fifth gen fighter, uh, the most it, it seemingly advanced fighter in the world, along with the F-22. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. The sort of keys to, for lack of a better term, maintaining a prime position, so to speak, um, so as to avoid um, one falling from grace, for lack of a better term. So I would say from a military perspective, it's speeding up the development time of mm. these systems. There's a lot of bureaucracy right now on both the government's end as well as industries. And so it takes a long time to develop one of these fighters. The F-35, the F-22, the last two fighters, 15 years from when it first debuted to when it went IOC, when it was capable of going into combat. Just to put that in perspective... The F-15, I believe, took seven years. Same thing with the F-117. And it was the same time it took to go from the P-51 Mustang to the SR-71 Blackbird, about 15 years. So we need to speed up that development time. We are yeah. very good at innovating. There's a lot of bureaucracy right now that we need to cut through. Yeah. So innovation... We need it. We need to continue to be, and, that, and that's an area I think where where we've shined is is that area of of, for lack of a better term, exponential thinking. And now we, it seems like that needs to continue, and we can't get mired in that in that bureaucracy. Um, Hazard, man, I just want to say, always enjoy talking with you. I really, really appreciate you taking the time. For those who are who who want to get this book, which I highly recommend everyone listening goes and grabs. Where can they grab it? And I also know you have a highly engaged YouTube channel and a variety of other channels. Where can people uh, find you and your work? So pretty much anything, any social media platform under Hazard with an S, H-A-S-A-R-D, Lee, L-E-E, book. You can find that anywhere you find books. You're talking about the audio book. You know, first time in Audible history that we recorded parts while flying in a jet. So that was that was pretty fun to do. I did the, the, the reading for the whole thing. The book has really taken off. It was Wall Street Journal bestseller, the number two bestselling business book in the country in May. It's being translated into a bunch of different languages. I was just working. It's being translated into German in a few weeks. So really excited to see that thing take off. I put a lot of effort into it. It was really a six-year project. I wrote every word in the book and I went through nine drafts to make sure that it was as perfect as I could make it. So yeah, pick it up. Let me know what you think. 
Uh, I'll tell you as someone who has read it, uh, I think we actually have the same publisher. And as someone who's 90,000 words in to polishing my own book, that is no small feat. I'm also grateful to hear not only have you been successful, but that it was a six-year process because I'm five years in and, and feeling like I really could have done it more quickly. Um, but it's not about, obviously, uh, how quick you do it. It's the quality with which it's executed. So, um, And it's a great book. I definitely recommend pick, people picking it up. Um, Hazard, such a pleasure to have you on the show, man. And uh, I really appreciate your insights. Likewise, man. Michael, thanks for, thanks for having me on. We have to get back together again soon.